Thanks for joining us back on our special mini-series on the opioid epidemic brought to you by the IFF Health and Safety Division. My name is Sarah Burns. I'm a behavioral health specialist at the IFF. This episode is about addressing substance use in your department and how labor and management can work together to promote behavioral health. We have two guests today. The first is President Dave Gelati from Los Angeles County Firefighters Local 1014. President Gelati, thanks for being here. You're welcome, and thank you for hosting this podcast. And we also have the fire chief from the Los Angeles County Fire Department, Chief Daryl Osby. Chief Osby, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. On behalf of the Los Angeles County Fire Department, I'm glad to be here and also partner with my president for Local, local, local 1014, Dave Gelati. Well, I appreciate you both taking the time to be on the podcast today. Uh, Chief, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and about the LA County Fire Department? Well, my background first is I've been a professional in the fire service for over 36 and a half years on the Los Angeles County Fire Department. I began my career in 1984 and I worked my way up through the ranks to my current position right now as fire chief. I got appointed as the fire chief in um, February 2011. And I can say that I've worked um, most positions throughout the department, so I have an awareness of some of the challenges that our firefighters go through each and every day. And um, my background, in addition to that, is that, you know, my father's in the fire service, so actually I grew up in a fire service family from childhood, so my experience extends beyond just LA County Fire Department. Um, the LA County Fire Department is an amazing organization. Um, we have uh, over 4,800 members in our department, staffed in over 175 stations, and we cover 58 cities and 2,200 square miles. So we're a very busy department. Um, we respond in over 1,200 calls a day. About 85% of our calls are paramedic calls. And I can just say that um, over the course of my tenure as a fire chief, I've had a good relationship with our uh, local 1014 as it relates to keeping our members safe. And I'm glad to be here on this um, podcast today. Thanks for that introduction. Uh, President Gelati, let's turn to you. I know you've been involved with the IFF for a long time. You know, tell us about your background and add to what the chief said about the Los Angeles County Fire Department. Well, um, Local 1014 has been a big part of the IFF since Al Whitehead and up through our current administration. I've been involved in the union as the locals um, president for the last 20 years and the last 24 years been involved with the executive board. Um, I'm a fire captain, uh, just like the fire chief. Uh, I've been through all the ranks up through my position. I worked as a paramedic firefighter as an engineer and now as a fire captain and uh, I put all that experience uh, along with my executive board members to work and uh, really we kind of view our operation here I think as a, a, a joint operation between both labor and management where the executive staff and the fire chief the union president and the executive board of local 1014 and when we combine our resources and that's not always the chief will attest to that but uh, we get more done uh, when we partner and much like the IFF's uh, wellness fitness initiative, um, dealing with opioid issues and behavioral health issues, the fire chief has been uh, just a spectacular partner 
um, with myself and um, our state organization, the CPF, California Professional Firefighters, and the IFF. So um, we have 3,200 members. We also have civilians. Um, I'm biased, but I would say probably the best workforce in the world, bar none. Put us up against anybody else. We're very proud of that. And uh, we work well with others in the state, but uh, uh, the chief will attest to it. We've got a very large department, and we cover a large geographic area, and we have uh, some of the best employees around, And uh, but they're human like everybody else. So, Thank you. For leaders looking to address substance use among their members, there are two main sources of guidance. The Joint Labor Management Wellness Fitness Initiative, or the WFI, and the National Fire Protection Association standards, specifically 1500 on occupational safety, health, and wellness programs, and 1582 on occupational medical programs. The video that accompanies this podcast reviews those documents in detail. This podcast will be a more organic conversation, providing an example of how one department applies those standards. Uh, so Chief Osby, uh, let me give the, the first question to you. I know that Los Angeles County was one of the 10 original departments involved in the WFI. What led to such a large focus on behavioral health in LA County? And how did you begin to shift the culture of the department? Well, thank you for that question, Sarah. And as you mentioned, the Los Angeles County Fire Department was one of the 10 original departments involved in the Wellness Fitness Initiative, WFI. And, I, and it goes to the health and safety of our, the well-being of our members. And I think that Dave Gelati shares the same notion that I share, that in our department, um, the number one objective each and every day is the safety and welfare of our employees, particularly our first responders. So as the fire chief, it's my expectation that everyone gets to work on time, they put in a good day's work, and they go home safely. And collaboratively between uh, management and labor, we do all that we can do to ensure that we have work, work safety environments, training, and then all the um, criteria that we can do to help them in relation to mental, physical, and emotional stress. And I'm proud of our organization. We've come a long way. I know that I mentioned earlier, uh, my dad was in the fire service and just a little backdrop. In 1978, there was a major airline crash in San Diego, where he worked at the time, it was a Southwest Airlines crash where over 100 people uh, died in that incident, and he was the incident commander. And he came from San Diego to LA City and LA County at that time asking for assistance because there was no peer support then. And I'm not going to even tell you what the chiefs at that time told him to do and where to go back to in relation to getting support. But since then, we've evolved. Um, when you look at our data, particularly I get a lot of my data from the IAFF, and they say that at least 20% of first responders suffer from post-traumatic stress. And I would imagine that it's probably higher than that. But as a manager, manage, as management in this department, dealing with my union president, Dave Gelati, um, we are committed to ensure that we're taking care of our team and doing the best that we can do to ensure that we have a good culture and that we provide all the behavioral health uh, wellness, um, peer support, and everything that we can do to keep our members safe. And President Gelati, um, how have you experienced this evolution, you know, over the last 5, 15, 20 years in the department from you know, not really thinking behavioral health is important as a whole to having it be a primary focus of taking care of the members? 
Well, um, I won't reiterate a lot of what the chief said. He was very comprehensive. I just share all those same thoughts on how we got to where we're at uh, in, in general. Um, and we are lucky. We have had a group of grassroots uh, firefighters who got involved early on a personal level uh, with Critical Incident Stress Management, CISM, that then morphed to peer support, um, still has elements of CISM when needed. So we've had that um, in our fiber, in our makeup for quite a while. But to be just uh, real candid, I think the defining moment for our department, Chief Osby and myself sharing the responsibilities when it happens, uh, we experienced um, a series of firefighter suicides um, a lot of them, um, four in a very short period and seven or eight um, over the course of a few years. And at the same time, nationally, we saw the numbers climb uh, to the point where it became um, so epidemic that we had to pay attention to it. It actually gave light to the behavioral health problems that firefighters were having as a result of either individual calls or cumulative stress from the job. And I think it was at that point in a career where we all pride ourselves on being tough and being able to stand up to the rigors of the job and not wanting to declare that we might be broken or hurt mentally, um, I think that those suicides, uh, to be candid, brought uh, us all to a place where we could not look away. And uh, I know that's when uh, the nation and certainly our department really said, we've got to make this a priority and uh, our goal is not to have any more suicides. Um, and there are a series of other behavioral health problems leading up to um, suicides and a whole lot of other things that make both uh, work life and personal home life uh, dysfunctional. So I think that was the defining moment for us to really grab this and say, we're gonna treat behavioral health uh, no different than any other injury um, that we might get on the job. That's what I would add to to this. Mm -hmm. So it was really out of necessity uh, that that so many members were hurting, you know, so much so that they were taking their lives or, uh, you know, witnessing or, or experiencing uh, fellow brothers and sisters taking their lives. I, I think that it had a very significant impact on all of us when we had to step back and see um, individuals that you know were friends with the fire chief, friends with myself on a personal level, people that were um, solid achievers in their career, people you would never think um, would, would venture down that path. And when that started happening, um, everybody hit the pause button, I think. And then in a way that we probably should have, you know, even before we, we looked at behavioral health um, in, in a most serious way and in a most compassionate way to, to change things. I think it just was a catalyst. We were already doing some of that, but, you know, when you get uh, fires burning in the hills uh, or, you know, with COVID, um, it strikes a tone with everybody that we ramp up our game. Well, that's what happened with the impact of uh, the suicides, uh, in my opinion. It, it really pushed us a little bit more uh, to, to get to where we're at, and I'm proud of where we're at now, but that push came, whether we liked it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, let's hone in a little bit. Uh, we know that nationally, good data doesn't exist on how many firefighters are using opioids or have an opioid use disorder. Uh, but President Gelati, I know that you have some, some data that's really specific to your members. 
Um, how were you able to get that kind of data and how is it used? Um, thank you for that question. Um, we're very fortunate here in a couple of different ways. Uh, a standard way back in you know, the old days, if you will, and without data is um, you know, somebody would get in trouble uh, while under the influence of opioids. And as such, that's how we would have it identified for us. Or there would be some chance occasion in, um, in, in, in their medical issues where it, where it came up. But um, we are fortunate in that we have a self-funded boutique indemnity um, health plan. And the majority of our members have that health plan. Uh, with that, we have the ability to track in a HIPAA compliant and most confidential way the approval, the ordering, and the use of opioids uh, for prescription use. So when our members um, would, you know, primarily the reason why it was happening was whether it was behavioral health driven or musculoskeletal issues where individuals got uh, into using opioids to manage the pain of musculoskeletal injuries, uh, they would get used to how it felt to be on an opioid. And then they would not only get one prescription, uh, but then get a prescription from another doctor and another doctor. We were able to track the prescriptions and the prescribed use of opioids. And when we saw uh, use or prescriptions out of the ordinary, uh, we would catch those, flag them. And in a HIPAA compliant way, we have nurses that work for us. They would call the individual and say, first of all, uh, we are not approving any of these additional prescriptions. And uh, we think you have a problem and we'd like to get you to some help. And that's how we ventured into alternative ways to dealing with opioids um, and use of opioids. And that's how we got it identified to us, believe it or not, for a big portion of our membership. And then as a result of that, we were able to direct them into care centers and give them treatment that they needed for the opioid use. That's amazing. I don't know of um, any other locals across the country or in Canada that have that type of setup where they're able to get that really specific data. Um, anecdotally, you know, how did members respond when they would get phone calls like that from one of the health plan nurses? Well, um, I, I want to uh, poke this back to the chief, too. I think he has something to offer here, too, in our partnership. But um, to your question directly right now, um, they were they were reticent to embrace that call. First of all, no firefighter wants to think that they have an issue with opioid use. They don't want to think they have a behavioral health problem. And a lot of these issues came about as a result of, like I said, physical injuries or mental injuries. Um, but once we uh, informed them that it was not only HIPAA compliant and completely confidential, then we gained their confidence and in fact, they then came to us in droves, even more than our tracking, saying, yes, I want help. And a lot of that had to do with getting their injuries treated or getting them into a mental health program, behavioral health program with peers and clinicians, culturally competent cl clinicians. Um, and then we could wean them, get them off of the use of those opioids. Um, things like yoga in the fire service. Things like mind, body, breathing exercises, in addition to the physical um, training and the physical therapy um, that they were getting. All those things came together uh, where individuals learned that they didn't have to become dependent on opioids to manage injuries by just masking the pain, but rather dealing with the pain in, in other ways. So we um, also partnered with 
many programs, including um, yoga in the fire service, believe it or not, uh, to get people in the right direction to do something different than just pain meds. And back to the chief, what I was going to trickle into here was, you know, we have some individuals that, again, you know, get in trouble while they're using an opioid as a result of all these other things. Well, the department has to deal with that, right? We have a public safety job. We have to ensure that our individuals are um, clean and able to do their job at work without being under the influence. That's a big concern for both the union and for the fire chief. But when we are able to get these individuals and have them connected with a program that has teeth in it, that has a reporting mechanism back to us with their compliance, that we know they're on safe ground as a result of how we track them into the system. Well, I think the chief can answer, but it gave him confidence, is, is my feeling as the labor partner, that when we were treating the opioid issue differently than just a discipline issue, that confidence came as a result of our partners, both within the department and through the health plan to treat individuals and not just have them uh, be out there without any sense of treatment. Chief, why don't you jump in here? What would you, what would you like to add on this topic? I want to uh, thank Dave. I mean, they do have a unique situation here in our department where they have their own medical trust. And so they're able to get information that the department cannot get from their um, um, nurse practitioners. But, but before I became the fire chief, I was in charge of our return to work program and workers comp and we work with occupational health when opioids first became an issue. And I was getting intel from our people about the opioid addiction from some of our employees that were hooked on prescribed drugs. And so some of the things I did before we even approached labor and I couldn't really get into the confidential uh, information of the case was through our occupational health or through our third party administrator that oversees these worker comp places is that when somebody is taking opioids is to ask questions or even put them in treatment even before the department becomes aware of it. So there's probably a lot of things that happen without even getting to my level, which I'm happy that we address these issues with our employees uh, individually. Um, but Dave Gelati does have a point that there have been instances where that does not occur. And we've had instances where we've had employees um, hooked on opioids. Um, they've come to work under the influence. Uh, one thing I can say that, you know, once that happens, it is a department issue that we have to address definitively. Um, but I will say that we have a good partnership in relation to making a distinction between this type of uh, addiction and other types of, of illegal use. Of, 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 of drugs or maybe alcoholism in the department. So one of the things that I'm proud of is that management and labor have worked together in these types of situations when we've been able to identify an opioid use that um, we've, able to get we've been able to get treatment for the employee. Um, unfortunately, because it is a department issue, we involve um, occupational health, but through a good labor management relationship, we're able to um, get good support for the employees, put them on a um, contractual uh, agreement between labor management and the employee that um, they are gonna get treatment, they're gonna get rehabilitated, that they're gonna have an expectation of performing well in their capacity here as a firefighter. And I will say to date, um, we've had 100% um, success rate 
in relation to bringing these types of employees back to full day, duty. Duty is in relation to the relationship established between the department and management and the employee in these types of incidents. That's amazing. It's awesome. I think we would all agree that we would all prefer that, that our members get help for an addiction or more specifically an opioid addiction, you know, before it becomes a work issue. And it sounds like there's avenues to do that uh, through, through the local. Uh, but it's great to know that if that, that isn't the case, uh, that if a you know member does run into some some trouble or some inability to to function in their role at work, uh, that the response isn't just to show them the door, um, but it really is about rehabilitating members, getting them back back to work, back to what they love doing, being a firefighter. Yeah, and I want to say I just want to just add to this is that you know sometimes they're not the easiest to negotiations, but I will say and and thanks to Dave Gelati, I mean because we're both busy, but this particular topic is. It's something that neither one of us has delegated to another member of our respective teams. Um, this is something that's been kept at my level, has been kept at Dave's level in a highly confidential way and with the employee. And like I said earlier, Sarah, you know, we're vetting a thousand in relation to this particular topic of addressing these issues and getting people back to um, full duty. Right. I'll join in with the chief to uh, the majority of individuals and the majority of our employees can be rehabilitated. They can be helped. They do reach up and grab the help and they pull themselves out of where they're at. But there are occasions when individuals, um, we try once, twice, um, they, they do not reach up and grab the help. They have been unsuccessful uh, despite all that we do. And be very clear, if you're uh, one of those individuals that can't swing that, um, you won't be working as a firefighter anymore. And both labor and management share the concept that a safe workplace begins with having safe members, safe employees at work. Um, but having said that, uh, again, back to the programs, once individuals are in with our behavioral health team, including a drug and alcohol specialist, um, there is nowhere for them to run. There is nowhere for them to hide and to hide in the shadows and function while under the influence. So that's what gives confidence in the programs too, that somebody will be tracked and not just an attempt to fire them or demote them or anything like that, but rather that they need to be in their program, be compliant and be working towards that finish where we have them back at work uh, with no supervision. So um, we've been pretty successful and you know, kudos to the chief for taking the chance in our direction to uh, join in that approach and to the union for also realizing that uh, not in every case will it work. There are certain things that have to be in place also uh, to have compliance with not only attending the program, but being, of course, free to come to work. Uh, we have used 40-hour positions and temporary details sometimes. Uh, we have used paid or unpaid administrative leave as well. Uh, as well as the employees' benefit time. So it's very comprehensive, um, and I think the employees have benefited from that. And uh, if you will take the help and listen to what the chief is saying, what your union president is saying, and the behavioral health team that we've employed, uh, you will keep your job and continue to go on and have a good career. Uh, if you don't take that help, well, you can take yourself right out the door. That's still in play. Yeah, Sarah, I just wanted to say for clarity, as I understand things, I don't have data in front of me because Dave is absolutely right. We've had situations where um, we've had people that have been using illicit drugs 
and we, we've been unsuccessful. But I just want to be clear in my response as it relates to opioids, as I understand, that, is that in that particular topic, we've been pretty successful. And Dave hit the nail on the head is that um, when the employee sees that, you know, labor and management are on the same page and um, there's no bifurcation in relation to us trying to help and we get the employee on board, then that's been beneficial. And I think moving down the road, in some instances, because of the relationship, um, we've had more people reaching out saying, hey, um, I have a problem. And that's been really good too in relation to, particularly from the department's perspective. And we much rather have our employees say, I have a problem, than we find out from the department's perspective that they have a problem. So I think in addition to Dave and I working together well, our employees are coming forward also when they're challenged. Um, this disease, interestingly enough, bridges the gaps between all ranks. That's another interesting thing. It's in the chief officer's ranks, not represented by 1014. Some are members of 1014 still. It bridges the gaps all the way down to the firefighters. So it is our, and even in the civilian section, not as much, but it bridges the gap of all employees. Nobody's immune. So that's what's nice too, is when I'm working on it too, I'm working on it for my civilian counterparts and logistically where I need them. I'm working on it for the chief officers that I work for every bit as much as the people I work with. And I think that's key also, you know, it, it applies to everybody. Yeah, I think it really speaks to the joint leadership that the two of you have shown uh, that more and more employees, whether they're union, non-union or civilian uh, in the chief officer ranks are comfortable coming forward and saying, you know, I have an, a challenge I'm facing and I, and I need some help with it. Uh, so they don't, they don't have to wait until they get in some sort of trouble. Um, this next question, I think, is probably for both of you, but could you tell us a little bit about the drug and alcohol policies that are specific in your department, and how have they changed over the years? Um, I'll just speak from the department first, and then I'll let Dave chime in. Um, in 1999, the department implemented its first uh, department-wide drug and alcohol policy, and basically it prohibited employees from using drugs illegally, consuming alcohol on duty or reporting to duty under the influence. And then it also in there, this criteria that's agreed upon by labor management in relates to if somebody's at work under the influence and how we go through the process of ensuring they get representation and get a drug or alcohol test by one of our contractual um, facilities. Um, and when those things have occurred um, in the past, we would just send them to occupational health for an assessment. I can say in the past, generally speaking, um, those people were probably terminated. I think as it, as it evolved, Sarah, um, currently we're in the process of updating our original department drug and alcohol policy. And we're gonna be sharing that with labor to do a meet and consult to make sure that we work in this collaboratively to make sure that we're both on the same page. But um, I think there's something that's unwritten here as it relates to the evolution. And I think that's just really the relationship that have been established between labor and management. I can't speak to past administrations, but I can speak to myself as a fire chief and Dave Gelati as the union president. The evolution is that um, we've been more sensitive in relation to understanding the stressors of our department 
and understanding that, you know, in certain situations that may lead to alcohol abuse or drug usage. And so Dave and I have worked really hard to expand our peer support programs to make it um, more uh, accessible and, and, and doing collaboration between labor and management and education to show him and I, to, you know, joined the hip to ensure that um, these types of programs are available. Self-reporting is available. Um, we're really sensitive to that. And I think that that's been an improvement in our organization. Then also too, as I mentioned in our, my last response is that um, when we find these cases, instead of from the department going directly from Aha, we caught you to discharge. Um, you know, the department with occupational health does an assessment. We do that in conjunction with um, local 1014. And then typically what we do is that we've been pretty successful in getting um, 24 month agreements with our employees to get them into um, uh, drug and alcohol programs and to do random testing. And like Dave has mentioned earlier, it's not on, always 100%. But I think that's the evolution in relation to where we began to where we are now um, with more to come. And I'll turn it over to Dave to elaborate more. Um, I'll keep it super short, but um, Chief's right on, spot on. Um, in the old days, it would be strictly punitive. There was not the knowledge that there, in fact, could be a disease or other issues that in fact, were the catalyst for the alcohol or the opioid or other drugs um, and, and the use of those drugs up to and including for a rare few um, while on duty. Um, with training, education, and empowerment of a program where we learn about all those things, while punitive is still always something that will have to be dealt with, things happen, um, and members have to be held accountable for those issues, but oftentimes they are either set aside for a time period or in fact um, mitigated completely uh, through the use of the treatment program and the treatment path and that was a big uh, paradigm shift for everybody on the department to realize that that could be an effective way to not only deal with the issues that highlighted what was going on but more importantly uh, we invest a lot of money a lot of time and energy into our employees. It's the number one resource on the fire engine, the fire truck, the paramedic squad. The number one resource is our people. And also they're part of our family. I know the chief speaks about that uh, a lot. Um, and their health and safety and our welfare together collectively is very important. And that shift um, towards treatment, treatment modalities, last chance agreements, um, that, that was, a, a big change and a big factor in helping individuals versus just punishing individuals. That's, that's the change we made from punishment only, punitive only to, to helping individuals, to fixing the underlying problems. And that's, it's a great change. It's a necessary change from punitive uh, to getting people back to the job that they love and can do with some assistance. Uh, the chief mentioned peer support. Uh, I know that LA County has one of the most robust peer support programs in this country uh, and that peers from LA County have assisted IFF members numerous times uh, all over the country after natural and man-made disasters. Uh, why such a big focus on peer support? I think that, um, you know, with this job, um, 
all of the manifestations of both post-traumatic stress and cumulative stress that we began to see. Everything from grumpy firefighter or grumpy firefighter at home uh, to, as I said earlier, uh, the worst case scenario, uh, suicides and people that actually, you know, complete uh, their suicide. Um, those issues brought about some acknowledgement and some necessity to try to figure out what's going on with our people. And as a result of getting into the weeds with culturally competent clinicians, with behavioral health specialists, and the concept of peer support and critical incident stress management, primarily that came from the military with post-traumatic incidents, and then slowly morphed into the law enforcement and the fire communities um, in us dealing with the stressors of our job to where we've come full circle now that we have a fire and EMS-based peer support behavioral health program. Uh, that was a journey that had to occur uh, because we were losing people due to these injuries and the fact that we weren't either acknowledging those injuries and treating them or even breaking down stigma so we would even be free to raise our hands was causing significant turmoil uh, in our workforce and in the numbers of people that were healthy at work. Every bit as much as heart attack, every bit as much as cancer, every bit as much as musculoskeletal injuries. And uh, making that turn to behavioral health uh, was truly a necessity to treat an injury that we left unrecognized. We left unacknowledged, and in fact, we pushed it away. We all pushed it away. Who wants to raise their hand and say, as a strong firefighter, paramedic, um, or any of our career options in, in the fire service, who wants to raise their hand and say, I'm broken mentally. I have an injury mentally. I have behavioral health issues. Nobody wants to raise their hand and put themselves in that category. That's what we were seeing. And come full circle now, I would have to tell you that I think people are very free and feel very embraced by our program uh, so that they would raise their hand every bit as much as if they had sprained their ankle at work and needed to tell their boss they have an injury. That, that's my first blush at how and why we went there and, and, you know, just a view of where we're at now. Yeah, thank you for that, Dave. And like um, was mentioned before, Los Angeles County was one of the original 10 departments in relation to wellness fitness, which was our, the health and safety of our, of our people, um, and our people being number one. Um, and, um, and, and I will say that this evolved since then, and we're still evolving. Um, I would just say, as it relates to the department, um, you know, when we look at our, 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 our core values, I mean, caring is our, one of our core values, and definitely from that perspective, we care about our members and their families. And so if nothing else, I mean, this is, this, this, is, this is the right thing to do to help them in relation to being in one of the most uh, stressful uh, professions in the nation, if not the world. Um, and also too, you know, above and beyond that, I don't wanna sound callous, but from a management perspective, it's also something that really goes, if it goes unaddressed, it's an impact to the organization um, to not help our employees when they're challenged. I mean, there's a cost associated with this. I mean, it impacts our, our, the health of the individuals. Um, there's performance issues. There's um, 
Um, there's sometimes there's litigation. And so, I mean, I think that by us addressing these things, and if you look at the risk management cost of our organization, um, that cost has gone down significantly because of the fact that land management and labor has a good program to help our employees, which is not something that's often talked about. And also too, some of the things that Dave and I are doing, just like you said, historically in our respective careers, it wasn't always noble to step forward and say, hey, I got a problem. And so that's been a real cultural change to really start the peer support program and then evolve it to where it is now for people to volunteer now, where when I came to the department years ago, just like Dave years ago, it was unheard of. You got talked about if you said, hey, I need help, I need this, I need that. You were just told to suck it up. But now we have people that are voluntarily um, coming forward saying they have challenges. And I know that Dave and I are continuously working better to ensure that through our MOUs or work relationships that we're improving this process. And then the last thing to start to answer your question as it relates to not just what we're doing here in our department, um, one of the things that I can say that I've talked to Dave about, and you know, sometimes we you know we we agree to disagree, or sometimes we disagree, but one thing that we've always agreed upon is that when he's ever come to me and said, Hey, there's a department, whatever part of the country that needs some assistance if there's been a serious injury or fatality, whatever the case may be, um, the IAF, the IAFF has reached out through Dave through our department to say, hey, this department needs help. And Dave's called me 24-7 about some department here in our state or regionally or nationally. And um, I've never said no. Um, I know that sometimes the IAF says they're going to reimburse us. We've never asked for reimbursement. Um, from, our, from my perspective, from my perspective, and I'm sure Dave feels the same way, um, if there's something that we can share as it relates to our experiences with other members of the international and other parts of this country that can help them through the uh, physical, emotional, um, spiritual, mental challenge, then we're here not just to help our employees, but we want to help them too, because we recognize and hope that if, if ever there's a need in our department, I'm sure that the IAFF will reach out to our department and help us in our time of need also. So um, I've never said no to Dave in relation to providing that type of support outside our department. Thank you to the chief, but that really speaks to the department and the chief's personal level of commitment to behavioral health. We never dotted our I's, we didn't cross our T's. We used to have a kind of a running joke, right, chief, that uh, hey, if the board of supervisors call in, call us in, either one of us, uh, we'll stand side by side and answer for any of the uh, efforts that we put forward. And we've also, by the way, had extremely uh, gracious support from our board of supervisors. Um, and that's key as well, having your elected officials on board or with your fire chief uh, in supporting a behavioral health program. Yeah, we across the IFF are just so grateful to the LA County Fire Department and to, to the leadership of both of you uh, and for your willingness to share resources with other departments, with us, uh, and rest assured, if, if your department ever needs assistance in the future, uh, the rest of the IFF will be there for you. Um, I want to pick up on something that Chief said uh, a little earlier. Uh, Chief Osby mentioned 
behavioral health programs being written into you know, labor management agreements or uh, the collective bargaining agreement, memorandums, memorandums of understanding. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. How are you planning for the sustainability of these behavioral health programs beyond just the short term? Yeah, thank you for that question, Sarah. And you know, I, I, I know my tenure, I have, I have a shelf life. <laughs> Dave's been union president for 20 years and I don't, I don't know why he's been able to do that. Um, but you know, I, I've been the fire chief now for 10 years and I know that we have a good labor management relationship and we have a good board of supervisors also. Um, and, 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 I, and I think culturally, um, we've come a long way in relation to changing the culture in our department. But I think it's important that when we talk about peer support or, or uh, wellness, fitness, or the health and safety of our organization, that um, we um, institutionalize the process, not just through relationships, but through agreements. And I'm, I can't speak to whom the next fire chief will be or who the next union president will be or the board. Hopefully they would have the same relationship that Dave and I have right now, but it's important for me to just institutionalize some of these um, relationships, either through policy or through our MOU. And, and I just think that's important. Um, that's something that I believe Dave thinks is important. Uh, you know, we started off with just uh, getting um, all of our members through our, our, our wellness fitness program um, in previous MOUs, the last pre previous MOU, we got that to 100% of our department where it's gonna be at the end, not just voluntary, but mandatory for wellness fitness uh, agreements and, 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 and appointments. Also the same thing with our behavioral health. Um, in the past, we've um, relied on volunteers, but now we have it in our MOU now where they'll get a bonus for that with required training. And, 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 and the beauty of that too is that um, in some instances, as a matter of fact, in most instances right now, that training has been provided through labor, through the MOU, which is really unheard of in the past when most departments feel that trainings did be provided by themselves. And so I think it's important. I know that labor and I are gonna be coming up for our next uh, agreement here in the next year and a half. And I'm sure between myself and Dave and the CEO, we'll find more ways to um, institutionalize our agreements in a way that um, they'll be practiced beyond our tenure as the uh, sitting fire chief and union president. And then also too, culturally, it'll, it'll be an expectation of our department members that labor and management continue to work at the level, continuously improve the level that we are right now as it relates to their health and safety. I would tell you that, you know, this has been an evolution of over, over 20 plus years now. And to get things, um, codified and, and in regulations, whether it is in the memorandum of understanding, which is done through collective bargaining in California and most states, or whether it's through a set of work rules, or whether it's through the IAFF, IAFC model of a labor management cooperative, a labor management agreement, um, you do need to take the time to put into print um, the things that you've come to agree upon both as labor and management and also what I'll term as best practices, both for the structure of your peer program, how you vet and select your clinicians, how your subset treatment folks 
are going to be vetted and agreed upon and used and how discipline is going to feed into that and so forth. That all needs to be put into some, some work rules and know that um, here's, here's a little surprise for everybody, but you know, you're not always going to get it right. Uh, we change and morph because we learn, uh, we experience failure, uh, we experience success, and then we grab onto those things that we uh, achieve success with. And those are the things that we start to write down or bring into our rules and regulations or into our policies. And sometimes they're not even policies that would be viewed as, um, you know, in the rule book. And if you don't do this, you're going to be in trouble. But rather in positive light, uh, the chief, I'm going to give him full credit, uh, came up with the thought of having uh, during September a suicide uh, prevention and awareness safety stand down. Um, we had two weeks before September hit, the year he came up with the idea. I jumped on board and said, holy smokes, that's incredible. Uh, I called our state union president, Brian Rice, and said, uh, we want to do this statewide. So we hit everybody and we now annually do a suicide safety stand down. Well, that's putting into print uh, things that went out to the fire stations, posters, QR scan reader codes. We have apps now, like uh, codifying how you get in touch with your behavioral health folks, your peers on all your shifts. And I'm proud to report we have over 130 peers now, and that's growing for a 3,200 member department, over 4,000 with our civilian workforce. Um, so, so what gets put in print is also not just policy, but programmatically what you put out uh, to allow access to behavioral health, to encourage it, to break down stigma, uh, buttons, pins, posters, uh, apps, things that we put out uh, in our routine mailings, that all becomes part of, of recognizing peer support and behavioral health. As far as the MOU goes on that, uh, I would suggest to folks out there, don't get too tied up on words in your MOU other than structuring a labor management agreement and a program that everybody agrees upon and then keep your work rules and your agreement on the actual program in an area where by joint bilateral agreement between the fire chiefs the union president and your elected officials you could change that language because things do change mou will codify it in permanency where somebody can't just get rid of it it also adds to it an element of budget security and importance to where it just won't go away. But let's face it, the, the chief's working with me right now on things that deal with uh, drug testing and our physicals and how we're gonna morph that. I'm working with the chief on behavioral health uh, clinicians and lead clinicians and peer support uh, uh, administrative staff and 40 hour positions to make sure we have a program. So that always has to have room to live and breathe um, as you build it. Um, that, that's, that's my input to that uh, for you. Sounds like a lot of work has already been done. Uh, I imagine there's still a lot of work to do. Departments who are on the forefront of an issue, uh, I've learned are always improving. You know, you're always skating to where the puck is going to be. Uh, so tell us a little bit about where behavioral health in the LA County Fire Department is going. You know, what's next? What do you hope to uh, accomplish in the coming months or years? Let me start out and then I'll dish it back over to the chief, give him a double left here. But um, where we're looking to go is, is the subject we just got off of is codifying 
in permanency record so that people beyond Chief Osby, beyond Union President Dave Gelati, beyond our team of uh, well-skilled um, peer support leads and clinicians, that this will continue on in perpetuity long beyond our time. Uh, that is, is an important task and goal for us. Um, opening up, if you will, the, the Division of Behavioral Health, uh, the Chief was kind enough to uh, work with me to get a temporary position for a 40-hour captain. Uh, we're working on hiring a behavioral health clinician as a lead clinician. We also have clinicians that are contractors with us that we can use under the direction of that lead clinician and our subset specialty uh, individuals. Getting all of those individuals hired into a physical building uh, or a place where people can feel comfortable in reaching out for um, behavioral health and where they can come to get a treatment and be talked to in a confidential way away from the workplace. That's a, a goal that we're working on right now. Um, and then lastly, I would say um, just is our ability to give a report back with some data, some metrics that matter to the county, to our board of supervisors, and then to be candid to chase grant money. Um, behavioral health for a workforce in LA County uh, is a priority for LA County's behavioral health chief. Um, we're working with Chief John Sharon. He heads up um, LA County's um, mental health division. He's um, the equivalent of Chief Osby, but over in mental health. There's money to be um, gleaned from his department when we can show that the behavioral health of our workforce is being nurtured and treated uh, so that we have a a well-functioning department. And again, costs get lowered because you don't have anything that occurs that you know takes away from um, your budget due to lawsuits or due to uh, unproductive workers or lost work time. So uh, we're gonna court a further a relationship with our elected officials and hopefully an integration with our county mental health services uh, to support our program as the niche program that's the best for the fire department. Th those are the things that I see uh, in the future as Chief Osby and myself uh, plan for our own retirements. Um, and I turn it over to the Chief for his perspective, but those are mine, Sarah. Yeah, well, thank you for that, Dave. And, and, I, and I guess, Sarah, Dave, pretty much said most of what I would say because hopefully you can glean from this conversation, we're doing this collaboratively. So, um, you know, we're working, we're, we're going toward the same destination. I will say that, you know, as this relationship has evolved initially, you know, you know, I probably wasn't the most popular chief or chief in the department. You know, when you try to give more responsibility to labor in relation to um, peer support. But from my perspe perspective is there's many things I don't want to see come on my desk. And one of them is behavior issues or, or personnel issues. And in some instances, you know, as it relates to labor, they have a better relationship with their membership than, than management does. And so they're more prone to really deal with their peers or labor than with management. So, um, you know, that's um, yields to have a, to having a good relationship with labor and management. Um, so that's been good for Dave to really be at the forefront of union presence as I understand it, to be talking about this particular topic on, on the department. And now since we uh, have shared more responsibilities with labor as it relates to peers and peer support. And there's two things that Dave talked about was our, um, our behavioral health clinicians 
And then I also, I wanted to add um, mental health and occupational health. So we wanted the department, we did put um, at, the, at, the, at the recommendation of Dave Gelati, we do have 40 hour personnel and a 40 hour captain now for the first time ever in our department overseeing our peer support program. But we're in the process of hiring a, a behavioral health clinic full-time behavioral health specialist to really work with our peers, work with labor to ensure that we have a higher level of professional help with our peers in conjunction with our Department of Mental Health assisting us. And Dave is right. Um, we're going to go after grants and other funding outside the organization, including our electeds. And then the last thing the department's going to be doing is also, too, we want to hire our own occupational health doctor. Um, right now, um, we go through the county of Los Angeles, which the county has over 112,000 employees. But I, I don't believe in certain instances when we go to the county occupational health doctors that they have the same sensitivities to the challenges that our firefighters and paramedics go through on a daily basis. So it would be best in my mind to have the, have the department hire our own occupational health physician, not to only deal with um, these particular topics that we're talking about right now, but even going back to when Dave talked earlier about you know his 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 medical trust that is there are certain instances that he can get information that I can't, but I also recognize that if we had our own occupational health doctor, then there will be situations where we can have a doctor to client relationship that I don't need to know about, but it's important for uh, the client to doctor relationship. For example, if someone's on opioids or they have some other medical challenges that can be addressed, that they can do that um, and help the employee rehabilitate themselves, become whole, and then come back to being a 100% productive employee in this department. So um, I think that as this relationship evolves and Dave and I institutionalize it and we get a system in place that um, the more we don't have to deal with this because it will be institutionalized and we'll have well-trained, equipped people addressing these challenges and then we'll have a workforce that will self-correct when they're challenged that they will self-report and get the assistance that they need that, um, you know, will continue to be a model in this profession as it relates to the services we provide our employees. We can probably just sit back, because right now I would tell you, Dave and I do a lot of work. <laughs> I want to get back to the point to where at some given point in our career, we could be the probably the conductor of the orchestra, opposed to being the conductor and playing an instrument. But I'm confident we'll get there. And, and it's an exciting journey. So um, I couldn't have picked a better partner than Dave Gelati to go down this journey with to ensure we're doing the most we can to assist our employees. And let me just echo uh, what the chief said there, the key point. This part about getting an occupational health doctor, many departments, large in size, New York, Phoenix, Chicago, Fairfax, you know, many of the members of the 10 original wellness fitness departments, they have a budget to have um, a doctor that oversees all their EMS personnel, and we have that. Um, but getting an occupational health doctor um, is key uh, to be quite candid, most of of, of your large cities or counties or even small cities, 
the fire department is different, and we, we proudly like to say that we're different with regard to our behavioral health and our physical, um, you know, problematic physical issue needs. Having a medical doctor, an MD, that your elected officials uh, can give authority to, and you have to have that set up. Uh, we have it in our uh, county charter that uh, the chief can hire an occupational health doctor, and then we can carve out of the generic occupational health programs doctor. That doctor and those people down at the big county, they're responsible for the whole county. And whether they don't have time or they're not contemporary and up to the latest, greatest techniques and uh, treatment modalities and peer support programs, um, you know, laddering um, programs that we have into our, to our behavioral health program, they're not up to speed on that. And they have authority over whether your employee can work or not. Well, that's nice if you can bring that to an occupational health doctor that both the fire chief and your union president representing the membership and therefore the members can have confidence in that there's authority where that doctor is not gonna let somebody work who shouldn't be working. But also if we have somebody that's being treated or has been treated and is cleared or needs certain follow-up care while they work, if that doctor certifies it and we have our behavioral health team in place, we now have a medical authority granting that status. And that gives legitimacy, it gives teeth to the program, and it gives credibility to the program. So I really appreciate that we're moving in that direction. It's not cheap, um, but it will net at the end of the day, I think a variety of, of advantages by having our own in-house doctor specifically uh, for behavioral health and physical injuries and issues. That'll dovetail into workers' compensation, by the way. And I think we can see that, you know, when we get more efficient over there, uh, we're going to see added cost savings as a result of a doctors guiding our members through their care uh, when it's a work comp-related injury, whether physical or mental. So plenty of good there. And uh, I would just add one last thing, too, is set yourself up for failures and roadblocks. Uh, it, the chief and I have been doing this a long time. And so when you hear us, uh, it's taken a long time for us to get to a relationship where, you know, uh, we work together uh, just just seamlessly. And even when we do have hurdles or setbacks, uh, we reset and we come back in. There is no alternative, no option for us uh, when we don't agree on something. We get back in, uh, work it out, iron it out, and get back to work. Know that you're going to have those hurdles those roadblocks, those obstacles. Chief and I have not agreed on everything. We've had days where we've had to take deep breaths, step back from issues in the behavioral health realm, reset, and come back at them. And believe it or not, uh, the chief uses a phrase all the time, Dave, just let that marinate. Well, I've picked it up, stolen it, and used it right back on him on occasion. And it is true, uh, when you hit these roadblocks or obstacles, let it marinate come back at it with the guiding principles that you both know uh, you can remain true to. And there's always solutions so that you don't blow your program up, that you don't quit. I've seen programs start uh, in the state of California and across this nation, get funding, everybody's on board, and they hit a couple of roadblocks, they hit some adversity, and next thing you know, whether it's from the union side or the department side, from the managers or the chief, they blow the program out of the water and it goes away. And we've had to pick up the slack and help some of those departments that are, that are in need. So prepare for failure, 
and strive for success. And, uh, and I think you'll get it. It's just so clear to me through talking to you both, uh, you know, for the, throughout this conversation, you know, how strong this labor management relationship is in the LA County Fire Department. Uh, and it's a great example for our listeners of how much good can be done for the membership when these strong labor management relationships are in place. Uh, so I'm going to give each of you one more opportunity for your final words. Uh, anything else that you'd like to share that, that we haven't covered, or if you want to highlight a point that you already made, uh, Chief Osby, let's start with you. Well, I just want, once again, I want to thank you, Sarah, and I want to thank the International Association of Firefighters for allowing you to do this interview. I uh, appreciate the relationship that I have with the IAFF, particularly the relationship I have here locally with Dave Gelati, our union president. And, um, you know, I think that we've pretty much said most of the things that need to be said. Um, he and I work very hard to ensure that we're doing the best we can as it relates to the safety and welfare of our team members. And um, it's not perfect, but um, we're always trying to implement best practices. And um, we're just gonna keep moving forward. And, you know, as I see it, um, you know, right now the baton is in my hand and the baton's in Dave Gelati's hand as the fire chief and the union president. And, I, you know, we have a good labor management relationship and the baton's in our hands to run as fast as we can, as long as we can, to do the most good for as long as we can for this organization. And, and from my perspective, I'm going to do it in a way to put the safety and the welfare of our members first. I'm going to try to impact our culture in a positive way, institutionalize all the things that we do well, and then at some given point, I'm gonna hand the baton off to the next chief. But until then, I'm gonna work to full capacity um, to ensure that we're working collaboratively to do the best we can for the safety and welfare of the members of the Los Angeles County Fire Department. Uh, likewise, uh to the chief, thank you uh, for your continued commitment through thick and thin as my partner uh, when we deal with behavioral health, uh, specifically opioid crisis, drug and alcohol abuse, and all those things that, that we see with post, both post-traumatic stress and cumulative stress, Sarah, to you, to um, all of the folks at the IFF and the IFC who we know we partner with um, in keeping this topic not only alive, uh, upfront, contemporary, uh, thank you. Um, for, for hosting us and letting us have a little impact on this. Thanks to both of you so much for joining us today, for sharing your knowledge, the passion, the lessons learned. Uh, it's very clear the commitment that both of you share uh, to working together and to you know, looking after the safety, health, and wellness of members. So thank you so much. To access the other videos and podcasts in this series, visit opioidepidemic.iff.org. Content was supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Energy under award number UH4ES009759. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Energy.